Look, Lenny, just stay away from Philo and stay away from me. Stop trying to rescue me. Those days are over. I'm a big girl now. I've changed. Stop trying to save me. I don't need saving. Just give up on me. I just, uh, I just wanted to make sure you were all right. You know one of the ways that movies are still better than playback? Because the music comes up, there's credits, and you always know when it's over. It's over! Welcome to part two of our Strange Days episode. But before we go into real talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we let our patrons know what they can expect in their exclusive patron feed, and we also let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. So we're closing down the month of August. We're uh, winding down from a very complicated last month of the summer. So we're a little out of whack. What that means Mm -hmm. is that you got an extra QVR out of this, but the downside is that uh, we are late on two other QVRs. (laughs) It happens. It happens. Uh, So let's, let's start the way that we always start, which is, with the Travolti steer, the, the ground level. It's like, what happens when you just contribute a dollar a month to our patron? What do you get? You get uh, cutting room floor stuff, like anything that didn't make it into the main feed episode that might be interesting, funny, relevant, insightful even. Uh, that's on the cutting room floor segments on our patron. Just get access to that. You also get access to our bonus episodes. This month, as you listen to this, it might already be there on the patron feed. It should already be there. Uh, it's our conversation about Paper Moon, the Peter Bogdanovich comedy, I guess, uh, demanded by patron Ben Murray, who started the month with us with Jaws the Revenge, and now it's closing us down with Paper Moon. Um, first time watch for both of us. Alex and I are mm-hmm. had a very uh, interesting conversation about it. So if you want to hear it, along with all the other interesting conversations we've had on every bonus episode we put on our Patreon feed, that's right there. One dollar. Travolta's tier. If you want more, you can kick up your tier one level to the Winonis or even higher. And you start getting access to other stuff like our pre-recording notes, our QVRs, the quick video reviews I mentioned earlier. Uh, the bonus one, the one that was not planned, but now <laughs> we put in uh, as kind of as a reward for uh, you guys being patient with us. Uh, Alex, watch Renfield, the Nicolas Cage, Nicholas Holt horror comedy. I think that's a good way to describe it. Uh, mm-hmm. If you've Paid attention. If you've been following us for a while, you know how Alex feels about Nicholas Holt. So it should be a fun video. I'm not going to tell you anything else. You're just going to have to go check it out yourself. Uh, and then we're getting it. Now that we're both back in the same state, the same city, uh, we're back in front of our, our regular recording stations and uh, and we're both relatively healthy. Uh, I think that we can finally hit back the, the dual QVRs for Martin from George Romero and Bones and all from uh, Luca Guadagino. Alex, we got got a lot of fun ahead of us. Yeah, we got some work. <laughs> we got to put on our working boots. Yes, which we'll do happily for you patrons. But in the meantime, check oh, out yeah, Renfield. Absolutely. And then, of course, have Contrarians After Hours. That's the spin-off show where we tell you what else we've been doing with our lives what have we read what have we played what else have we watched that didn't make it to the main feed alex what are you bringing to contrast after hours this time covid sucks but it allowed me to (laughs) knock out uh the jaws sequel reviewing and viewing uh man you you got it real fast huh 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for our listeners that listen to our Jaws La Revancha episode, no, uh, y'all know that I said I was going to go back and I purchased all of the Jaws's on Blu-ray because like two, three, and four came in a three pack that was like ten bucks, and then I got the four K of the original Jaws because I realized I didn't know it already. Um, so we'll be talking about Jaws uh <laughs> two and three specifically um and then i'll reinstill that the original jaws is awesome just in case any of y'all forgot <laughs> and then i played a lot of video games while i was sick with goddamn democratic hoax uh but i'll <laughs> i'll save those for another after hours because today julio as we record this august 23rd of 2023 uh the world got a little less interesting as terry funk died terry funk I honestly think by any criteria would have to be considered one of the top 10 professional wrestlers of all time. But Terry had more than that. He offered more than that. And this is a film podcast after all. And Terry, you know, he was in over the top. He was in Roadhouse. He, the, he's one of the subjects of the famous pro wrestling documentary Beyond the Mat. Uh, he had some television show appearances. He, he was a very, very unique, uh, a one of one and a guy that um, was special and there'll never be another one of him so like i did with antonio noki when he passed away i'll do a little uh obituary for terry on after hours and again if you don't know who terry funk is that's fine i'll bring you up to speed on it but also um try to watch uh as many of his movies as i can before then because obviously he's not lawrence fishburne but he does have a, <laughs> a decent filmography and um yeah, he was one of my favorites ever. So that was that was a blow. I posted about it on social media. He kind of seemed like one of those guys that would just you know outlive us all. I I honestly never thought the day would come. Um, so be talking about Terry Funk and the uh, the Jaws franchise as any normal person would do. Cheese um, and crackers, wink and a smile. There you go. Uh, wine and grapes, just you know, <laughs> d- doubling it up. A charcuterie board of discussion. There you go. Um, Julio, what uh, what are you going to be discussing? Well, Alex, the last after hours, I told you of my trials and tribulations in Alaska, and I promised that I would uh, talk about the the couple of movies I actually did watch during the during that trip. I, I foolishly downloaded so much uh, on my phone, like all these movies and, and then all these books and comic books on my Kindle, thinking that I was going to get through them. And it turns out that I had very little free time, <laughs> so. I did get to uh, the latest Ben Affleck movie, Air. You probably seen the uh, trailer, right? the one about the Air Jordans. <laughs> when I got to LA, when I stepped foot outside of the airport, the first thing I saw was a giant billboard for that movie. So it's always going to be burned into my brain for like my trip to LA. Who who was in the billboard? Was it Damon or was it like a, a an ensemble? Yeah, it was like uh, a bunch of like squares of different characters and like visuals from the movie. Okay, well. I'll explain to you the story. Yeah, I, I, I remember the cool morning air from Los Angeles, like hitting my face as I looked up and saw Ben Affleck with sunglasses on. <laughs> well, it's it's a it's a movie I watched on a train, uh, and then there's a movie I watched on a plane, and that is yeah. uh, a little going a little further back in history, in film history, Sidney Lumet's *The Verdict*. It's a Paul Newman vehicle. Uh, where he plays a lawyer, and that's that's all I'll tell you. I mean, I think that people that know the movie or that are familiar with Newman's career, they're already nodding their heads. Are like, oh, he finally got to that. And uh, 
people that don't know Paul Newman, I mean, it doesn't matter what I do to explain it. You're not going to know what I'm talking about. So just listen to the After Hours. I'll, I'll break it down for you. I think it's uh, they're both movies worth watching if if I can sell them to you. If what I tell you in the After Hours doesn't sound interesting, then there's no point in you like even giving them a shot. But that is me. I, I, I think that mine's going to be the the lighter side of the After Hours this time because you, you're bringing sharks you, and, and then you're bringing a a revered top 10 wrestler. So I don't know that I can compete with that. I'll take it. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, if any of that sounds interesting uh, or any of the other things that we mentioned before the After Hours, check out our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash Prime. Look at our tiers and see if you would like to join the Contrarian Supplements. $1, $3, $5, and $10 are our respective tiers. Head on over and check it out. A dollar gets you in on the ground floor, as we say, all the way back to our original our first patron post, which was our bonus episode on Blue is the Warmest Color. Uh, along the way, you'll get access to our Summer Break trilogy, which we had my sister on, who's a teacher, discuss some of the, the great Summer Break movies. And then we have our Roxena series that we did where we left No Stone Unturned and <laughs> the legendary rivalry and film careers of both Dwayne Johnson and John Cena. And then we recently completed our Lohan miniseries, which was a lot of fun. Well, Fun being a relative term, but it was... Um, had a happy ending. It did. It did have a happy ending, and it was, I don't know, something I'm proud of we did. And we we went deep on the, the films we discussed in The Life and Times of Miss Lindsay Lohan. And that's all there. Like I said, four quarters, a dollar. Um, can't even get a soda for that anymore. But you can get access to the, the patron of The Contrarians. So patron.com slash contrarian prime. To all of our current existing patrons, God bless y'all. We love you dearly. And as I like to say... We are taking applications for new patrons that are very quickly reviewed and approved. The process takes less than a day. It's not like applying for a job. <laughs> All right. Well, Alex, are you ready to uh ready to admire Ray Fine's hair some more? Julio, in fact, Juliette Lewis did all her own vocals for the film for the performance of her character Faith. Is that when when she was singing and when she was delivering lines, or did they get somebody else to do her lines? And that's why they sound so weird. Yeah, that could possibly be. Uh, it was originally written by and performed by P.J. Harvey, but then the vocals for the movie were, were done by Juliette Lewis. And the movie's title comes from the album Strange Days by the Doors, and a cover version of the album's title track is played in the movie. So a uh, musical movie in many ways. All we needed was Ray Fiennes breaking into song. <laughs> Not a good one, but... James Cameron did extensive editing work, especially on the final action sequences, but he could not be credited because he was not in the editor's union. He joined before, he joined before making Titanic and is credited as an editor on that film. It's like, I'm missing out on a credit? Fuck that. So what it sounds like here is first conceived the story in 1986, Jim Cameron, that is, uh, but shelved it due to his commitments to other projects. He revived the idea at the behest of ex-wife Catherine Bigelow after he had also helped her rewrite Point Break. Cameron handed in what he called a scriptment, a cross between a script and story treatment, but had to leave due to other commitments. The screenplay was finished by Jay Cox, who was mainly responsible for the dialogue. Ooh, I wouldn't want to take credit for that. So I think 
we have an idea here of what this is. James Cameron had an idea for this movie. The actual inner workings of that were written by another person, and then it was directed by someone else also. Uh, obviously, in both <laughs> Catherine Bigelow... Well, the whole, my whole point is... He, I'm not trying to trying to give your boy out of trouble. (laughs) No, that's actually not. I wasn't trying to say like he's infallible in this circumstance. But my the point I'm trying to make is you have three highly skilled people in their field, Cameron Bigelow. And then, like I said, Cox was nominated for best screenplay for uh, Gangs in New York. And what else did he write? The Age of Innocence. Oh, now you got my attention. Yeah. He was nominated for both Age of Innocence and Gangs of New York. We had one adapted and one best original. And then, oh, I remember this movie. I've never seen it, but I know De Lovely, the Kevin Klein. Yep. Erwin Winkler. So he was a critic for Time, Newsweek, and Rolling Stone, transitioned into a, a screenwriting. As a screenwriter, he's notable for his collaborations with director Martin Scorsese. Uh, particularly Age of Innocence, Gangs of New York, a screenplay he started working on in 1976, as well as Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days. He did an uncredited rewrite of James Cameron's screenplay for Titanic and was with Scorsese, the co-screenwriter of Silence. Cox and Scorsese approached author Philip K. Dick in 1969 for an adaptation of his 1968 novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Though the duo never optioned the book it was later developed into the movie blade runner by screenwriter hampton fancher and director ridley scott so my boy here you know he may not be someone everyone recognizes by name but the point i was trying to make at the beginning was you have three very accomplished and skilled people in their field and what results here is not something that i thought was particularly good uh and i think that just shows that that ADM of too many cooks is very, very real. Um, I know so little about this movie, though. So, like, I'm going to end up reading more about it to see, you know, if Bigelow or Cameron or Cox even what their thought is on it in hindsight or what they thought of the finished product. Um, Julio, I want to lead off by asking you would you rather watch Southland Tales again or Strange Days? Oh, you son of a bitch. I was not ready for that. (laughs) Out of all the things you could have asked me. Uh, probably, oh man, am I just watching it by myself? Why not? Just, you know, background while you're doing shit around the house. We can, we can just narrow it down to that. You don't actually have to pay attention to it. It's just, we had mentioned Southland Tales a few times in the first half. They're both comparable length, have kind of similar trains of thought story-wise. And uh, I remember you weren't crazy about Southland Tales, so I'm trying to see how much you didn't like this. <laughs> well, quality aside, I think that this is a more unpleasant experience. I would you know agree. I mean? Yeah, there's there's at least two instances, maybe more, of sexual assault or or pretend sexual assault, and that was that's rough. I mean. Again, not a not a direct commentary on the quality of the movie yet, but just that I don't know that I want to sit through it again. I've done it twice now because I I think I told you before like I watched this when it came out in theaters. So uh, the edge might go to Southland Tales because I know I can look up and laugh at that movie at any point. There you go. Yeah, whereas like with with this one, it depends on what's on screen at any given time. I don't need to see Vincent D'Onofrio dropping the N word again. 
So what was the appeal to seeing this in the theater? It was written by James Cameron, directed by Catherine Bigelow? No, it was just a new movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> At the time, I remember the the because I, I was in Peru, so the marketing that that came with it, it was honestly it was Ray Fiennes because I knew Ray Fiennes from uh, Schindler's List, and it was this thing where the marketing was saying, "Oh, he plays against type in this movie. He's it's not the Ray Fiennes because you know he did the Schindler's List. I think by now he might have already done also uh, the English Patient." And if not, he he had done like a bunch of roles that were kind of like, you know, he was not like this. He was not like Nero in this in this movie. So I know that that was part of it. And then I hadn't seen a single Catherine Bigelow movie at the time, but I know that they were touting it as like, oh, Catherine Bigelow, who has done Point Break. And she's a good, accomplished director. So this should be interesting. And it dealt with the, it was science fiction about the turn of the millennium. So that sounded cool. Yeah. Uh, so I I went and I... I watched it probably opening weekend. I went with a bunch of friends. My God. And yeah, it was, it was a big outing. So English. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> it was an event movie, man. He had a Schindler's List and quiz show leading into this and the English patients, what he followed it up with. Okay. See, one of these things is not like the other. Because <laughs> he plays like a British professor in a... In quiz show, and of course, the English patient. He is the English patient. Yes. I can get you what you want. I can. I can get you anything. You just have to talk to me. You have to trust me. Okay, trust me. Because I'm, I'm your priest. I'm, I'm your shrink. I am your main connection to the, to the switchboard of souls. All right. Well, let's get to it. But before we do, critically, 68% of Rotten Tomatoes. So there was a fair share of criticisms. What uh, Which quotes do you pull for? Our second half here. All right. Four rotten quotes now. No quote from Sam Hurley. We we waited. We waited. But I guess the kids were just, they were just out of control. They were, they were like rioters at the end of uh, 1999. There you go. So Sam, we look forward to hearing what you, what do you think of this movie? If it's, uh, if you're a fresh tomato or a rotten tomato or somewhere in between a tomato on his way out. Right? In the meantime. Here's Philip Martin from the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, who says, Strange Days is an ultimately heartless movie, all sheen and surface. It is an attenuated supermodel of a film, hip and beautiful and startlingly empty. See, throwing shade at supermodels, Alex? Sounds like it. Hashtag not all supermodels. <laughs> well, do you think this movie is empty? Uh, yeah, that'd be a word I would use. All right, we'll get back to that. Uh, next, Harlan maybe Jacobson. Empty, maybe hollow. Hmm. I mean, I like I like hollow better as just as a descriptive, but I don't know that it's much more positive than, <laughs> than empty. All right, Harlan Jacobson from TV Guide says, Strange Days hurdles down the track for two hours, frantically trying to warn us en route to the big switchback, only to pull up in a hiss of smoke and hot air. I don't know what he means by big switchback. Is he talking about just the climax? The hell is a big switchback? Uh, like I get what he's saying that you know he we're going full full speed and then at the end it's nothing. But the big switchback, like the um, big reveal, maybe Juliet Lewis's double double turn. Oh, <laughs> she switches and then she switches back, maybe. But uh, 
it's funny because in a way you could say that the, the, the ending of this movie is just where it goes the biggest, right? It's like a little riot. Mm-hmm. It's a race war for 10 minutes or so, but Harlan Jacobson was not impressed. Neither was Jonathan Rosenbaum from the Chicago Reader, who says what this movie is ultimately saying is don't think at all. I don't think that's what the movie's saying. No, it's definitely in some cases trying to challenge, you know, on some level of intellect. I think what this movie's saying is the script and this idea weren't completely fleshed out. This movie's saying, can you give me a minute? Can I try again? <laughs> can you come back in 10? <laughs> We're going to close with Kenneth Turan from Los Angeles Times, who says, Though the creators of Strange Days may well be interested in its dramatic and thematic elements, they do not have the same touch for these moments as they do for camera pyrotechnics. Would you say the action sequences in this movie are better than its dramatic sequences? I guess, yeah. That limo scene's got some cool elements to it, but it's... I mean, this certainly ain't T2. In ter- it's it ain't the first Terminator. It ain't aliens. It doesn't like any of that. You know, if Cameron's the editor in there, you, we can bring him into the equation here, and it's definitely not that. And then also, Catherine Bigelow. I thought Zero Dark Thirty was boring as hell, but there are some really <laughs> good sequences in there. And Point Break, for Christ's sake, she made. And that movie has plenty of tremendous action sequences. So, do you like uh, the one with Jeremy Renner? The Hurt Locker. I've never seen the Hurt Locker. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think it's pretty good. This movie just, yeah, I think the action sequences are just a decent um, encapsulation of this movie and that I would describe them as kind of directionless. And I wasn't kidding. It's literally like day one slasher movie stuff where the bad guys just like, all right, let's get out of here. They're dead. <laughs> well, there's a lot of uh, kind of puzzling plot developments in, in the movie or like the way that characters act. It, it just feels very, it's not, it's not a strong script. I think that it's, it's a very interesting world that they've created. And Agreed. I, I think that maybe that's where I've been, we both, I guess, have been just hacking at Cameron all throughout Contern's Corner. But if I were to give him props for something, and it sounds like this came from him. So uh, it's just that he came up with a very interesting setup, like the mythology, the idea of this technology, and especially that he did it all these decades ago, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's impressive. And, and, I I just wish that there was a more interesting story being told using this world. And I definitely wish that it was not one that was kind of handicapped by the attempt to make it socially relevant. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like, the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe you disagree, but I, I feel like this movie would be so much better if it was not so ambitious. If we just narrowed down its scope and be like, all right, we're just going to be about how... Absolutely. The squids are like drugs. And just just tell me a story about that instead of telling me how like the squids are like drugs, but also <laughs> the United States is a very racist place and the, the turn of the millennium is where all this could come to a to a boiling point. Uh, but also there's like toxic relationships. You know, everything else that's happening in this movie. It's just it's just too much. Yes, this movie is too much. And yeah, it you're right. If you can pull off a social commentary and accurately portray, you know, issues in a society and show that, like, hold them in front of someone in a way that almost says, like, you need to be accountable for this shit that's happening. 
that's what a lot of great films have been about. A lot of great art has been about. This movie does not want to be that. It's just a action movie that was of its time and presented as such. Presented, it looks just like Johnny Mnemonic almost, which was obviously the same year. The difference being, when we talked about Johnny Mnemonic, that's just kind of a dumb movie that uh, wasn't too ambitious. It was just too comic booky for audiences at that time. I, I, that was kind of our bottom line, right? It was, mm-hmm. yeah, it was too fantastical for audiences at that time. Whereas this is like wants to just be futuristic diehard, but then complicate stuff with interjecting these stories of you know the projection of racism and the you know, social ladder falling apart that the that's not really being told. It's not a, it's an important story, obviously, but it's not being told well. So it just distracts from everything else going on. If this had just, and let's be honest, this movie could be 40 minutes shorter. And if we just had a shorter movie, that was what you're saying. Just a dumb action movie where Angela Bassett kicks a bunch of ass and Ray Fiennes is kind of an idiot. Who's, uh, you know, a lovesick puppy that eventually mm-hmm. in the end learns that what he's looking for is right in front of him all along after they kill the bad yep. guy, then like, that's fine. It, they just overcomplicated it here with yeah, too nothing much. Nothing wrong they, with telling that simple story because you already had a world that made it interesting. You didn't need to add the other stuff. You're right. You know what? I, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but this movie actually would be better if it had just like lean harder on being more of a noir because you already have the protagonist, right? You have this. You have the femme fatale, which would be Juliette Lewis, and you have the the guy that is kind of trying to figure out what's going on. So he's not he's not Humphrey Bogart in uh, The Big Sleep. Uh, he's not even. Uh, I guess he's closer to Elliot Gold in The Long Goodbye. There you go. <laughs> but you know, he's kind of like all shaggy, and he doesn't know what's going on. But he's kind of smart mouth, and he can figure things out if you give him enough time. And he has muscle. He has Angela Bassett, who's really the one that that has common sense and just that. And they need to figure out the murder of like this one person that's connected to them in, in this world. That's that's good enough. But they don't do that. When this movie started, I, I remember getting the feeling. I was like, oh God, is this a, a neo-noir? Is, is this what that was? Because of course, when I watched it the first time, I, I had no concept of that. I just watched it as a movie, a sci-fi movie. And I remember back then, I remember liking some stuff that I don't like now and then not liking some stuff that I still don't like now. (laughs) (laughs) But the the main thing is back then, and this just shows how young I was and how, you know, life shapes you. Racial tension is not something that's exclusive to like the post 2000 uh, years. Yeah. I think that we're more exposed to it now. I think as if you don't, if you haven't suffered through it, if it wasn't part of your everyday life, it is part of your everyday life now anyway, because it's just like headlines and you have more exposure to those headlines and so on. But uh, obviously, it was still going on, you know, in the nineties when this it was already going on in the nineties. But I was a teenager, so I had no idea. So I remember thinking, just being very confused by the the climax of the movie. Like I could not believe that it was. That it was such a big deal, like that there would be a riot over the fact that they killed this rapper, and that then later, it, it just seemed unbelievable to me that this the the level of chaos that happens over a couple people's actions in mm-hmm. the movie, and then watching it today, I was like, oh no, this is just like everyday life in America. I I completely buy it. I think that it's not executed well in the movie because I think that by then, you're in like closing in three hours and you don't care and <laughs> the yeah. movie should have ended when, when Tom Sizemore died but it's wild because I could 
I remember not liking that when I was uh, when I was younger, and then watching it now, it's like I don't like it, but I understand it at least. I, I get where they're going, what they're going with, and I and I buy it, even if I don't think that it's it's well executed. Suppose you pulled us over because you had suspects fitting our description in the area. Is that what you're gonna tell me? Well, what was the description? Two black males in a car? <laughs> yeah, right. I remember thinking that all the performances were great when I was younger, and now I. I am sorry to say that uh, it was not a bit. I really think Juliette Lewis is not good in this. Did you like her? Um, I didn't really care for anybody in this, with the possible exception of Ray Fiennes, and we'll cover him in just a moment. Uh, Angela Bassett's pretty good. She's I, I buy her as a badass. It's just the dialogue she's given, and you know the way her character's written is just kind of like okay. And uh, Tom Sizemore, God bless him, he's going for it, but. <laughs> His character's such and like the archetype of the friend that turns on you. Like when you see him immediately, you're like, Well, I've seen a movie before, so I know what's gonna happen here. I think I use that expression in Contrarian's Corner. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Vincent D'Onofrio is obviously a good actor, and Michael Wincott is too for what they do, but they just like uh their characters, there's really nothing to them. And D'Onofrio's case, when he's, you know, accompanied with Fitchner, it's like they're just as evil as can be to the point of like almost comedically like, Oh my God, they, like they kill a puppy and they, you know, <laughs> it's ridiculous. And Wincott is just there to kind of look like Buffalo Bob, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> Juliette Lewis is probably the biggest tragedy of this movie or the biggest, um, victim of this movie's presentation, because as we know, she's a very good actress. And especially at this time she would have, been down for anything but her character is sing cry yell yell just scream so i incline to agree with you here through no fault of her own she's not good in this movie uh we don't have sam hurley's uh opinion but alex i did talk to somebody who loves this movie who relished the opportunity to rewatch it because we're about to have an episode on it and because he's going to be working on uh editing the warm-up video for it uh, our friend Corey Ari who does uh, most of our video editing yeah when he heard that we we're doing strange days he messaged me and it, we had like a little talk about it and I I did bring up that I didn't like Juliet Lewis and he brought up the point that he he had an easier time buying her because he's he's been in that type of relationship like the <laughs> the Ray Fiennes and Juliet Lewis relationship where you are with somebody that's obviously not good for you, but you are all you can see is the good in her. And so that helps him buy it. You know, he's like, she's a terrible person, but I can because I buy how he's obsessed with her. Yeah. Uh, then that makes it easier. And I was like, I, I guess. I mean, it's still not I don't know that that explains the performance. I think that that explains the the logic of it because that was the other thing, you know. And I said in Contreras Corner, like I I have a hard time understanding. It's hard to be on Ray Fiennes' side in this story when one of the things, maybe even the thing that drives him primarily, is his obsession with this woman. Yeah. And when that woman doesn't seem worth being obsessed about, in fact, the complete opposite, right? It's like he should be running away from her. Then. It's just hard to connect. Like, can you imagine like how how this movie plays if you're invested in that relationship? If she was, instead of her being this train wreck that seems to be constantly interested in other men besides him, if she was somebody that you understood, right? That she she loves him, but 
he's a loser, so she left him for somebody that at least has some sort of like financial security and has a future or whatever. And he may be evil, but at least he's not a loser. And you can tell every time that they have an interaction, you can tell that there's still a connection there. And so you're invested and you want him to rescue her and you want her to be rescued and you want him to end up together. And that doesn't, that's not my experience watching this movie. Every time they're together, he, he looks pathetic because he's going after her when she doesn't show any interest in him. And she seems just toxic, just demeaning him and yelling at him. And maybe. I don't think I've ever been in that type of relationship, so maybe I'm missing that link, right? And if you've been in that type of relationship, you you're like, they nailed it, I, <laughs> and then you're you're on board. So, yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's movies; they're, they're subjective. And and Corey Corey has no uh, no problems telling you like the horror stories of of just relationships he's been in. I used to live with him, and we were just straight war stories, and his were far more horrifying than mine. <laughs> But that's cool. So, you know, it works for some people. Just like I I have no problem. I I feel bad saying that she's probably the weakest link in this movie. But just to counterbalance it, because since you won't defend her because it also didn't work for you. I'll bring up Corey's point. Maybe Sam also likes her. I don't know. Sam, let us know. And I can respect and appreciate that from Corey's perspective, because I also sure he and I could share a few beers and trade some stories for, you know. (laughs) bad relationships or situations like that uh for this particular example though it's become so that i just watch these movies we do through a different lens and the ones that are really good are the ones that like i get lost in and forget that i'm watching it for a podcast and in this case i'm watching it and because I kind of wasn't with it and I was busy like trying to think of like, you know, how we're going to talk about it. What are some of the points I want to hit that I don't really have the mental capacity to do all that and think beyond that of like, how would I react in this situation when I'm not enjoying it? Like Mm -hmm. if it's a movie I'm really into, or like I've talked about the ones I forget to take notes on and get lost in, or if I'm just really enjoying it, I can do that so much more. And in this case, I was watching this. I'm like, well, we got to be negative about it in the first half. I'm really not liking it to begin with. So my focus is just going to be like what I can kind of take apart in this. Uh, and again, that's not how I live my life. I don't want people to think I'm just overly cynical about everything. It's just, <laughs> I mean, what does this movie uh, knowing going in, it was a two and a half hour runtime. I was like, all right, well, we got there. And then it took us like 40 minutes to get through the first 20 minutes of the movie. And so it just got to a point where maybe upon rewatch one day, I can see a little more into that. It's just, I was kind of checked out of like trying to put myself into this movie just because I really wasn't enjoying it. Yeah, it's it's pretty convoluted. And I, I, I'm starting to feel bad though about saying that I would pick Southland Tales because as convoluted as it is, <laughs> just realize that I Oh, I was just setting you up there, man. I, I Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was it was a no win scenario. Because no, I'm thinking yeah. the opening of the movie, I think before it starts really getting twisted around, is not bad. Like I, I no. remember I could watch an entire movie of just Ray Fines doing business. Not, he doesn't have to get involved into any major conspiracies. It's just him just peddling his little discs, putting squids on people's heads. And I like the, people the, the idea of noir because it basically is everything that happens after that junkyard scene where they, they get the movie is when it starts to get really like, what? Like, what's what's going on here? Because just the whole idea of it, you know, he's this guy who was a cop and he's 
got forced off the the squad and now he's into this black market life and then he gets tied up in the wrong thing and he knows too much information and the piece that he needs is his car got towed so we got to go down this route to see you know how we get there and how we get it back that's all good and then it just uh, yeah and not to say that everything up until that point is great because that's also running parallel with like the stories of uh the anticipated riots and how the year 2000 is going to ruin everything and then this murder that we don't really know what's going on that I can see the idea of introducing that murder early because it doesn't have anything to do with Nero, but then eventually, you know, it comes that he knows everything about it, but it just, it's too, yeah, you used the word earlier, ambitious, and I think it, there's a lot of stuff in this that probably did look good on paper. The dialogue's not that, but I think the idea of a lot of what was going on here looked intriguing, and in execution, it just was a fucking mess. I heard stuff. What stuff? You know, I heard stuff. Smoke, rumors. I've heard stuff. I've heard stuff about a death squad. I'm thinking now that uh, it is not what I think of when I think of James Cameron. So I wonder if that was part of his original treatment. Because it is something that I think of when I think of uh, Catherine Bigelow's work, especially later in her career, trying to talk about social injustice or just having a, a sort of like a social political message or exploring those those angles in our movies. You seen Avatar, bruh? I didn't want to bring it up, but... <laughs> <laughs> but but camera, okay, even when I think of that, I think more of the ecological message, right? Yeah. If you tell me, oh, it's about saving the whales or about protecting nature, yeah, I get it. That, that is Jim Cameron. But the, because... Uh, I haven't seen it, but Catherine Bigelow has that movie from a few years ago. It's called Detroit. Yeah. 2017. Two hours and 23 minutes. And that is just, I guess she decided to drop any of the sci-fi pretenses. This is just fact-based drama set during the 1967 Detroit riots in which a group of rogue police officers respond to a complaint with retribution rather than justice undermines. That is that is like an angle of Strange Days. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and and she she decided. I don't think the movie did very well. I think that the people were thinking it was going to be kind of like an awards contender, and it it didn't really do what they were hoping it would. And I haven't seen it, so I can't really tell you. But that part, watching Strange Days, that feels a lot more Catherine Bigelow than James Cameron, and uh, it seems like it's something that definitely interests her. I mean, you know, even I know you don't like Zero Dark Thirty, but Zero Dark Thirty is trying to talk about stuff. In, in the way that Strange Days seems to be trying to talk about stuff, but not really. <laughs> like they back off because they need to have a, a, another weird virtual reality sequence. So it's kind of an odd combination. It could Again, be just that. I don't want things to get twisted. I don't actively dislike Zero Dark Thirty. I just think it's really boring. <laughs> There's a whole episode. People can listen to it. Yeah. It's, I'm, I don't, I like it more <laughs> than I liked uh, Strange Days. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> I think Catherine Bigelow will just wipe her brow after hearing that statement. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Catherine Bigelow definitely went on to bigger and better things. I think that she, this might have been kind of like a trial run for something that, that she was interested in. Or I wonder if she just, this is how she discovered that she wanted to maybe do that kind of stuff. Because it's not, I'm not an expert. I mean, clearly I just... I, I can cherry pick titles in her filmography and say like, yeah, I either I've seen them or I've heard of them, but she started with like genre stuff, right? Like near dark is a vampire movie. And, uh -huh. and then at some point 
she made the jump to kind of like prestige dramas and she's directing stuff like The Hurt Locker and Detroit and Zero Dark Thirty. And and then maybe somewhere in between you have Strange Days, which seems to be like the science fiction movie that goes out of its way to try to have some social relevance. I mean, sci-fi is always ideally socially relevant, but this one is just in your face, like going to have race riots at the end. So I guess... <laughs> Bring it back. I always think of this. Whenever I've thought of Strange Days, I always think of it as a Catherine Bigelow movie, not a James Cameron movie. And uh, watching it this time, I was watching it, trying to watch it as a James Cameron movie. (laughs) And I would point out, it's funny because I just assumed automatically that the dialogue was was his fault. Turns out it was a third person that was in charge of the dialogue. It's a third party candidate. (laughs) But the big ideas seem to be his and, you know. Good on him. I definitely liked the the world that this movie creates more than I like what he's done with Avatar. Sorry. Well, that's like your opinion, man. <laughs> Give me five more movies set in the Strange Days world in 3D. I think that's probably one of the biggest um, aspects of this. It's frustratingly hollow. Like it feels like there's a lot more we could have done here that would have been fun. Just some of the stuff we talked about so far. It's just they try way too much, and it uh, kind of kills what we do have. Now there is a man in lead here. He's mm-hmm. a he's a good looking man too. Uh, Ray Fines. We referenced where this was in his um, film career. You know, he had done plenty of stage work prior to this, but had just had a few movies coming into this and Schindler's List and Quiz Show being the biggest ones. And um, man, he's really going for it here to the point where I'm watching this thing and man, he's having a good time doing this. His performance makes me wish I liked the movie more. Yeah. Uh, It makes me wish that he was involved in a different story. I was like, and we have this character played by this actor, but in a different story. That's what I want. And it had me like questioning what else has he done that you could kind of compare to this in terms of letting himself kind of fall into the cocky hero of the action movie. And um, I'm not sure what the answer to that would be because this movie had a budget of $42 million and was a massive bomb, just made $8 million. So maybe it scared him, spooked him. He was like, I don't want to, I don't know. I don't want to do that again. (laughs) Okay. Before this movie, whenever you hear Ray Fiennes, what what do you think of? Ray Ray Fiennes, the Shakespearean actor that, you know, I just think of like a very respected uh, man of the screen and stage. And also he's a Voldemort. I've never seen a Harry Potter movie, but I know that much. It's the power of Harry Potter. You haven't even seen the movies, but you know that Ray Fiennes is the bad guy. Yeah. And, you know, he obviously has had some fun with his career from time to time. It's just, this is not what I think of. Uh, Coriolanus, I think of that. And I think of... Oh, um, that's right. (laughs) He's in the... He was in a couple of the modern Bond movies, right? Yeah, he's uh, the new M. There you go. Yeah. The last two or three. But I just kind of always thought of, um, you know, kind of a distinguished actor that veers off the beaten path from time to time, but never in consideration for like leading man action hero. And that's kind of the problem with his performance. This, in my opinion, it feels like that's what he's going for. And the movie's trying to be something different. 
it's not trying to be the formulaic action movie and he's trying to be and in many ways in my opinion succeeding at being an, a 90s action star it's just the movie he's kind of an idiot <laughs> and <laughs> and in a way that's not fun and endearing of the character like you know how rocky's kind of a loser in the first rocky movie uh it, here he just kind of comes across as an idiot <laughs> It's like, yeah, you deserve to have that beer bottle broken over your head. What do you think was going to happen? <laughs> I think it's endearing up to a point. I think that by the third time that he's trying to sell somebody a Rolex that's fake, I'm like, all right, we've seen this. Can can we move on? You know. But at first, I was enjoying. I said that how, many, many times throughout this movie. Can we move right? on? Right? <laughs> yeah. Can we just keep going? We get it. It's like he's a talker, not a fighter. Uh, which makes it kind of weird when then later he can fight. I guess with the. the I like him as somebody that that would try to talk his way out of out of trouble, and it's fun when it backfires on him. But it also it gets repetitive, and I think that's another thing that I, I remember thinking even back then. Uh, oh yeah, it's Ray Fiennes playing against type, but then they don't really give him much to do because so much of his energy, so much of his time is spent chasing after Juliet Lewis instead of doing more interesting things. So that kind of gets repetitive, but he's a, I mean, he can be such a dick that the way that he treats Angela Bassett in the first half of the movie, is just, it doesn't feel like he deserves her at the end. He doesn't right. deserve her at the end. Yeah. It's hard to understand why she puts up with him. Even when you get that flashback towards the end where you see that, oh, he was comforting her son. He was a cop that was actually really nice and showed humanity uh, to her son. And you're like, all right, that's why they're friends. But from that to like, I, I can't buy. It's it's really hard to buy that she would be in love with him and just put up with all this shit. I mean, I like the mirroring, right? She's putting up with his shit the way that he puts up with Juliet Lewis's shit. Yeah, but but I don't feel it. I just see it as an exercise, like on the page, but not not as something that I can buy when I'm watching it unfold on the screen. Hey, Mace, you look great in that dress. I mean, better than I would. I have been pretty negative about this movie so far, and I want to make one thing clear. I'm happy I watched this movie. Um, I have obviously many issues with it, but I had virtually no knowledge of it going in, and there's pieces of this that are very fascinating to me. You know, it's the Chapter 27 thing of like, just because I don't like him, and this is a better movie than Chapter 27. need to make sure I put that out there right away. Uh, just because I think a movie's bad doesn't mean I can't think parts of it are interesting or the idea of it is fascinating um i mean that's a lot of movies that fall on their face are still the watchman is an example of a movie that while you and i both think is good there are some parts of it that are bad that then make it more interesting because you spend more time thinking about like man what what could have been and so this isn't a movie that was bad and i'm like Glad it's over, and I'm going to move on and never think about it again. This is definitely a movie I'm going to – I can guarantee you we'll have many conversations with people about uh, and will come up on this podcast numerous times in the future just because of – it obviously wanted to be something big, and it failed at that because basically what it could have been was right – it's – my God, the story of uh, Mason Nero is the story of the movie. It's <laughs> – <laughs> there was something obvious right in front of you all along, but you took the really complicated route to get there and it kind of muddled things along the way. The ending <laughs> is dumb. How like there's this massive riot that just breaks up. So this white guy can kiss the girl at the end. 
Yeah, it's let's give a uh, Bigelow, Cameron, and and Cox the benefit of the doubt and assume that there was a harder, grittier ending. But then, audience testing told him, "Nope, we need a happy ending." And that's yeah. I having not read to confirm or deny that yet, I would believe that because it's there are plenty of movies that end like that. It's just like yeah, it's a movie. That's how it ends. But for the world this movie had created and like the consequences of the actions of the characters, it seems way too saccharine, way too cookie cutter of an ending. Yeah. It's so grimy. There's so many horrible things that happen here. I think it's a combination of that, but also the world that we live in. And honestly, I think it's the same world that, that they, that we lived in back when the movie was opened. When you draw from real world conflict, so heavily, it's almost disrespectful when you just have it be solved in 30 seconds, right? Like, oh, the two bad cops get get arrested slash killed. And then that's it. We can go on and celebrate New Year's. Kiss the girl. <laughs> oh. So all that I just said, Julio, does that make sense? Is that kind of similar to how you feel of like, you may not have enjoyed watching this, but it's definitely something that'll kind of stick with you. And it's an interesting movie to revisit. Yes. I mean, it's it stuck with me from when I watched it. I haven't rewatched this movie since it opened back then. And uh, and it was still something that I remembered, something that I uh, not referenced, but, you know, it was a point of reference in the sense that I knew that Ray Fiennes had had that moment in his career and that there was a. Uh, and that Catherine Bigelow had made a movie about the turn of the millennium. I mean, that that kind of stuff stuck with me. And it was just something that I always meant to revisit at some point just to see how I felt all these years later. And now I have. And I don't know that I wouldn't watch it again, but also don't know that I'm in a hurry to watch it again. I'm more likely to talk to people about it than I am to to watch it again. But it has it has it has some good stuff in there, like you said. I remember that shortly after I watched it, I was still in film school, and uh, we had this assignment uh, by, I think it was our photography teacher, maybe. But she was like, all right, I want you to pick a movie, pick a scene from the movie, and then you're going to play that scene in front of the class, and you're going to explain. You're going to break down basically how it's shot. And uh, and I decided to be a smartass, and I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to use the opening of Strange Days, because it's all in one shot. So... <laughs> I just did, and and I was wondering if I was gonna get in trouble, but it was just too late. Like I had the tape, and I was I, I had to commit to it, so I just I just played it, and uh, I guess my teacher hadn't seen it because it wasn't in theaters for too long. So yeah. it wasn't like I was playing a scene from The Godfather or something. And if you haven't seen it before, I mean, it's it's a pretty cool sequence, right? Like yeah. that opening yeah. is like uncut, and there's stuff going on, and then there's like that big reveal at the end. So that was cool. And I remember I I, I got away with it. She was like, oh, that's Hell cool. Yeah. I was like, I know. That's what I thought. <laughs> I don't think that I actually did like a very in-depth analysis of the things that happened, because even though it's relatively simple, I did. I was I was looking at it when I was watching it uh, this time, and I was like, yeah, he, they do something the way that they choose to what they choose to show you and how they get around not showing you some other stuff. I mean, that's, you can talk about it and you can do a 20 minute presentation on that sequence. I did. I think I just played the, the scene and then I was like, isn't that cool? <laughs> that's it. They did it in one shot. You just said, I, I will take no questions. Yes. Next. Top that. So what is your score, Alex? Where, where do you land with strange days? Uh, man, I was, 
I was bouncing back and forth there for like the first hour and a half, and it got to that point where D'Onofrio and Fitchner were chasing Angela Bassett, and I paused it to get up and get a root beer, and there was still a half hour left. I was like, you got to be fucking mm-hmm. kidding me. And so yep. that did some damage, the runtime. So I, when I logged this on Letterboxd, oof, it'll... Depending on my mood when I log it, it'll either be two or two and a half stars. <laughs> so that would translate to probably a C minus. Um, what about yourself? I've also been debating two or two and a half stars. I'm going to land with two. Uh, part of it might be just the, the, the Cameron slash Bigelow curve. I I know they've done better. I know they can do better. And, and, but also, I, I think that the things that I don't like really irritate me. So I'm leaning towards negative. I mean, they get two stars for all the things it gets right and for all the potential, but ultimately it's not. I'm glad that there are people that like it. I think that it's a movie that doesn't deserve to be forgotten. <laughs> and and yeah. as as long as people like it and talk about it, it's something that people are gonna revisit. And you know, it's just gonna be it should be part of film history. Uh, but it's not a good movie. So yeah, I'm gonna go with two stars. Well, there you go. Sam, if you do like this, we're sorry. <laughs> if you don't, uh, welcome. <laughs> nice <laughs> or I guess he, he, he'd be welcoming us if, if he also doesn't like it. He would say welcome to the club. Either way, we hope you enjoyed yourself and hope you feel that your patron dollarage was well spent. Uh, speaking of which, Julia, what is coming up next? Coming up next, uh, we get... Uh, patron request slash demand from patron Josh Ragland. And this is the movie Frank. It's a Michael Fassbender vehicle. 92% on the tomato meter. Just certified fresh. Directed by Leonard Abrahamson, who, if I'm not mistaken, went on to direct Room with Brie Larson. So some, some heavy hitters here. Have we done a Fassbender movie here uh, before? I mean, I know we did the commentary for... Uh, Prometheus, but I was just about to ask if old Fassbender's shown up on here before. Well, Julio, I guess I don't know if he's been on the uh, the timeline, but I do know we, we've we talk about shame all the time. <laughs> endlessly referenced shame. <laughs> we've discussed the uh, X Men, the modern X Men movies over on our Patreon. Mm-hmm. We've uh, definitely referenced Haywire before. Uh, I've talked about Fish Tank, Eden Lake. I mean, it's kind of surprising. We talk about him so much. We feel like he's here all the time, you know? So <laughs> it's kind of... He's in Jonah Hex. I didn't realize he was in that. Anyhow, Michael Fassbender, he's coming... Arriving, to, finally. He's coming to the table. He's 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 packed a couple lunches, and we're going to sit down and watch Frank <laughs> and see which way the wind blows. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, I look forward to that. I have seen this one before, Alex, uh, a while ago, but I, I was pretty sure you hadn't. So Josh, if I recall correctly, gave us a few options, but this one seemed uh, like it would be uh, pretty fun. Excellent. Very much unlike Strange Days. So it's also a nice change of pace. All righty. Well, that was Strange Days, and we know what we got coming up next. It is Lenny. I, that's a good segue. Lenny, Lenny. We had Lenny Nero, and we're going to Lenny Abrahamson. Abrahamson? Is that how you say it? I guess. All right. Well, we'll call him Nero on the episode just to keep it straight. <laughs> Julio, with that being said, do we have anything left to tend to? Or are we ready to get out of here? No, it's, it's time to unplug. Just take the squid off your head and 
take us to the perennial plugs. All right. So we'll start off by giving thanks to the festive years who provide our opening and closing track. They kick us off with Last Stand, take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Rothbeeser is the man behind our logo and behind all the graphics on our webpage, our Patreon page, our merch page. That little tomato looking at himself in the mirror, that's Hans's handiwork. So if you like it, let him know. You can reach him on Twitter or X at Mildemonios, M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S, or you can email him, Mildemonios at Hotmail.com, or you can check out his website, Mildemonios.pe. That's where you can also check out the rest of his work. He's a writer, so there's a list of his work, his novels, and he's also a podcaster, like I said. Uh, He has a podcast about Peruvian current affairs called Nación Combi, and a podcast about economy called Marginal. Hans, thank you for all your support. LateNightGrin.com for our friends over in the pro wrestling realm of things. I'm going to be hanging out with a couple of those gentlemen this weekend on my trip to Chicago, so uh, looking forward to seeing them. Joe, Matt, Oracle, Robert O'Neill, the whole gang's over there, LateNightGrin.com for any and all podcasting needs as it pertains to professional wrestling. They continue to support us and what we do, so we'll do the same for them. And speaking of continuing support, our social media team our guy, our video engineer, as it were, our resident editing expert, Corey Ari, who continues to just absolutely kill it with our YouTube videos uh, and clips that we post on our other social media accounts. And Zoe Perez also for the years of support and help with our social media game. Facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Uh, on Instagram at Contrarian Prime. YouTube.com slash at Contrarian Prime. Uh, our Twitter accounts are in the bumper. Uh, we're still calling it Twitter. We haven't. The legislation has been passed yet to where we have to refer to it as X or X account or anything like that. But, Corey, Zoe, we really appreciate uh, all the help you've given us and continued support that uh, you provide. And, of course, most importantly, we appreciate the support from you, the listening public, for tuning in to yet another episode of The Contrarians where we're right and you're wrong, and we'll catch you next time. (laughs) 